0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're covering Netflix's new remake of Rebecca alongside the iconic adaptation by Alfred Hitchcock and the original novel by Daphne du Maurier. Directed by Ben Wheatley and starring Lily James and Armie Hammer, the new version is absolute horseshit. <laughs> Along with being horribly miscast and filmed through some kind of Instagram filter, Netflix's Rebecca makes some deeply misguided changes to the story, a gothic drama about a twisted marriage. Uh, Morgan has just watched the film literally like 10 minutes ago. I watched it a couple of days ago for review purposes. I also just watched the Hitchcock adaptation now for research because I was curious. Everyone says the Hitchcock movie is amazing and they're correct. It's perfect. It's a perfect adaptation of a great book. So um I think we're ready to roll. Morgan, would you say this is probably gonna be the most negative review we've done since our amazing episode on Passengers?
1: Yes, I think this is one of the worst movies I have ever seen in my entire life. So we're I mean, we're ready <laughs> to go. The thing is,
0: right, I have technically seen many worse films. Like if this was an original film, I'd be like, this is a bad film. But as an adaptation of Rebecca, it is, like, insultingly atrocious in every single regard.
1: Obviously, I have seen, like, technically more incompetent films than this by a lot. But as you say, given what it is, like, that's what we grade these things on. And uh, for what it's trying to do, this is appalling on so many levels. And I was agog. And you had seen it before me, and other people I knew had seen it. And like, I had listened to other podcasts where people were like, this movie is horrible. <laughs> and all of that information was not enough to adequately prepare me for how bad this movie was. Like, I was shocked. I'm almost speechless. And I literally <laughs> did just finish it. So I, my brain is just yeah. like, Wah! So and, as what? a
0: foundation for our listeners, I'm sure some listeners will not be aware of Rebecca. Um, obviously we're going to spoil it. We're going to discuss spoilers. So we're going to give you a little intro to Rebecca, the book, and the general story, and also a little intro to the director and the actors. You will have definitely seen the actors and other stuff. The director you probably haven't heard of unless you're into British indie thrillers. But um, Rebecca itself, classic novel written in 1938. It's kind of following the Jane Eyre formula of... Many brilliant gothic novels it 's a formula which I love a great deal, which is a naive young woman moves into a big, ominous house uh, which is just it 's a perfect formula it wins every time and in this in this novel, uh, the main character is not named, which is kind of crucial to her lack of identity. She is a young middle class by British standards woman who is working as like the companion to a wealthy lady on holiday in Europe. Um, She's kind of nervous. She doesn't really have any friends. She's just so socially awkward and inexperienced. And she meets this very kind of confident, powerful, charming, but very emotionally closed off English aristocrat called Maxim de Winter, who is a middle-aged widow. And they have a whirlwind romance and she moves back in with him in his house in England, which is called Manderley. And there she quickly discovers that um, the whole place is kind of haunted by the memory of his first wife, Rebecca, who was this fantastically glamorous, compelling person. And the combination of the main character being socially isolated, and constantly gaslit by her husband and by the sadistic housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, basically pushes her into a nervous breakdown, and she's just feeling deeply neurotic about the fact that she's overshadowed by Rebecca, and then kind of the the denouement of the story is when she finds out the truth about what Rebecca and her husband's relationship was really like. Um, And Morgan, shall I just go into that to spoil everyone?
1: Yes. If people don't know the story of Rebecca, which obviously some people won't, but like it's been around for a yes. <laughs> while, and it's also basically Jane Eyre. I yes. mean, it ex- is explicitly a revision of Jane Eyre, this, this novel, so... um I mean I was surprised in certain ways when I watched the Hitchcock movie the first time like it is very suspenseful but in other ways it's very predictable so I think we should just talk about the story. (laughs) And like having read the book this week
0: and also watched two films each time I was like I'm getting a different experience from this story so anyway yeah so she's completely obsessed with the idea that like everyone is judging her compared to the perfect Rebecca who her husband's still in love with but it turns out that actually her husband hated Rebecca who was an abusive psychopath and he actually murdered her. The final act of the book is a murder inquest when they find Rebecca's body in the ocean and discover that it may not have been an accidental death and the main character the second Mrs. De Winter and Maxim De Winter kind of finally come together in a more equal partnership by helping to cover up this murder and having kind of unhappily ever after, but obviously not really because the whole relationship is a nightmare founded on lies. It's a fantastic book, wonderfully well written, very well observed and it's all kind of told from the perspective of this first person protagonist who's just like constantly misinterpreting people's interactions with her and second guessing herself and is generally just very nervous and that's fantastically illustrated in the Hitchcock movie whereas in this new film which is directed by Ben Wheatley uh they make many many horrible decisions including making like I mean first of all just the casting Morgan let's talk about the casting because it's
1: truly a nightmare Well <laughs> it it is I think we should talk about the Hitchcock movie a bit okay. first before we get into this though because part of what makes I mean this is a horrible adaptation of Rebecca the Novel, which I have also read and love. I read it after having seen the Hitchcock film, and, like, I knew everything that was going to happen, and I read it in, like, one day, because I was just like, I have to get to the end, even <laughs> though I know all the plot twists. Like, it's really engaging. But um, I think the film is definitely more, like, permeated in the cultural imagination at this point, the Hitchcock movie. And part of what is so stupid about this new project is that... You know, I love old Hollywood movies from that period, so I have a warped view of, you know, a remake of a film from 1940, but of movies from that time period, Rebecca is definitely one of the ones that is most watched today. Like, people watch this movie. Not, like, on a Marvel level, but, like, people who definitely don't watch a lot of other films from that era... There's a pretty decent chance it's that you've seen Rebecca at some point. Accessible. <laughs> yes, and it's similar to Hitchcock's later movies in some thematic ways, in terms of like gaslighting type stuff, vertigo type identity issues, this like woman be having a difficult relationship with his man, but it's not formally audacious in the way that something like Vertigo is, you know, 20 years later. And part of that was the fact that he was having, it was his first American film after coming over from England, and he didn't have full creative control over it. He was in sort of fights with the studio. And so it's, as you say, very accessible. I think it's one of his best movies, but it's just not sort of difficult in the way that I think some of the later ones are. Not that Vertigo is like, hard to watch, but it is doing something kind of tricky in a way that Rebecca just isn't. And people love this. Teenage girls love the novel and the film of Rebecca and always have. Rebecca, the novel is one of those books that just like has always sold well and never gone out of print. Right. It's not an obscure thing that has been revived. They were like, you know, what we should do that weird movie Rebecca that no one's thought about since like 1950. Like, people love this movie, myself included. The problem, right? Which I
0: think is what you're articulating here, is that it is both far too similar to that 1940 version, but like in color, but also all of the stuff they change is bad. And we're going to kind of discuss that in plot terms and thematic terms, to in terms of like connected to how they portrayed the two main characters and their kind of dynamic. But if you're going to make a new version of this, you need to intelligently think about what you're going to change to make it more relevant. And um, there's a great piece we'll link to in the show notes by uh, the film critic, Angelica Bastian, who is, she's a great writer when it comes to kind of performance and also old Hollywood. But this is exactly the kind of thing she's good about writing about. And she kind of pointed out you know, if you were going to do a new remake, you need to, you know, you could swap in a woman of color in the lead role to kind of discuss like the different race and class dynamics, or you can like update it in some other way. But the way they chose to like make small changes just made it like so much worse. And there are so many things which just feel like hollow copies of the original film.
1: I think they probably would say like, "Well, it's an adaptation of a no- of the novel, not the film." But there are things like Rebecca's rooms in Mandalay, the house, which is not where the second wife gets to sleep, like the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, pointedly puts her in the sort of inferior rooms, right? And the rooms where, that are Rebecca's rooms that she gets to see later in the movie are like a carbon copy of the first movie. Like, they've done the production design so that it looks exactly the same. And there's no reason for that. Like, that doesn't need to be the case, except that they want to reference the older... Film and there are a couple other things like that where they've done something that's exactly the same for no particular reason, and it only makes you think of that other movie, which is better. But in terms of casting, you know, before we talk too much about the actors in this film who are, they're so bad, it's really not their fault. Absolutely atrocious, really abysmal. The lead parts in the Hitchcock film are played by. Joan Fontaine, Lawrence Olivier, and Judith Anderson. Um, Joan Fontaine plays the second wife. Olivier is obviously um, Maxim de Winter, the aristocrat. And then Judith Anderson plays Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper. I don't think I have seen Judith Anderson in any other movies. She must have been in some, but this is definitely like the role she is known for. And then obviously Fontaine and Olivier had long careers. But um, Olivier is a bit younger than he's really supposed to be in the novel, but he still has that sense of like... Authority And they give him sort of gray hair. I'm fully convinced that he's
0: 40 in that film. I mean, basically it's meant to be a love story between a man who's about 45 and a woman who is between 20 and 25.
1: Yeah. I mean, Daphne du Maurier was famously very picky about the adaptations of her books, and there were a lot of them because she sold so well at the time. Um, But this was one of two, I believe, that she loved. I don't remember what the other one was, but like, she really loved this film and thought it did a really good job adapting her novel, which I agree is the case. I think the novel is more ambivalent about the relationship than the movie is. The movie's not like, oh, wow, what a great romance, but the novel is really pretty, like, chilly. And the fact that they have Olivier playing that part, like, inherently makes the character... A little bit more appealing. Like, I don't think I'd ever laid eyes on him before I watched this movie the first time, and I vividly remember, like, texting our <laughs> mutual friend, friend of the podcast, Charlotte Geter, when I watched the first time, and I was like, "Lawrence Olivier was hot. Like, I just had no idea. <laughs> I'd never seen him. You just think of him as, like, the Shakespeare guy, and he is so hot in Rebecca. Like, it is, it's really overwhelming, and what he, what it is, is, like, he's so repressed, but there's, like, something going on inside of him that you you totally understand why this girl is so compelled by him, yeah. right? Like, there's some mystery there that she wants access to. And Fontaine, I think, is pretty one-note. Like, she kind of makes the same facial expression over and over again. I mean, where, like, I thought one she of was her incredible. Eyebrows. I think she's really good, but I think it's, like, the kind of acting style that was very much in vogue. I mean, yeah, they both
0: definitely are kind of of a period. When you watch a film from 1940, there are different acting styles. And there's like a lot has been written about Laurence Olivier throughout his entire career about how he was a revolutionary actor. But I mean, there is a lot of films and books which are kind of about... They have a nervous young female protagonist who you're sort of meant to identify with because she's, you know, really nervous and awkward. And I was watching this and I was like, this is one of the few ones where I'm like, I just find her incredibly identifiable because like all of the little embarrassments she experiences in that film and her body language is just so evocative. And then you combine that with having this sort of like terrifying movie star like yelling at her. (laughs) It's just amazing.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think that performance is really good, but I've always felt that he was, I, I still do think that he's better. Um, although, of course, they sort of play off of each other. And he did not like her and wanted uh, Vivian Lee, his wife, to play that role. And apparently the whole time was just like, oh, I hate this. And of course, you watch the movie and you're like, Vivian Lee could not have done that part. Like, this worked out <laughs> fine. But having now seen this new movie, I, the whole time I was like, wow, Joan Fontaine, so great. In that original film, because she's very beautiful, of course, like she's this movie star. But when you're watching it, you're not registering that. She really does feel kind of frumpy. The costuming is really, really good. Like she genuinely looks like someone who just like wears a cardigan all the time and is kind of like uncomfortable in her body. And she, as you say, conveys that sense of being just like really nervous and awkward all the time. And she's this kind of like small person and just like She seems uncomfortable taking up space and this like direction and screenwriting of all the sort of class dynamics in that movie is very smart. Like she's the lady of this big house all of a sudden and she truly has no idea what she's supposed to be doing. And there's a great scene where she accidentally breaks a like ornament and just puts it in a drawer because she doesn't want to have to deal with it. And, um, Mrs. Danvers thinks that one of the other servants has, like, stolen this thing because it's very valuable. And there's some conversation with Maxim about this, and then Mrs. Danvers and the servants leave, and the second Mrs. DeWinter is like, oh, actually, I broke that, like, sorry, but, like, I'm afraid of the housekeeper, like, I don't want to tell her, and he's just like, you idiot, like, why wouldn't you just say something, like, what's the big deal? And you so get this sense of, like, why she's so uncomfortable, and I tell that- little story to lead us into the updated version, in which she just comes out and is like, oh, sorry, I broke it. What? All of the little nuance and the, like, drawn-out uncomfortableness of that scene, and every other similar scene in the movie, which they change, is gone. Well, like, there were just so many moving parts in this
0: new film are conspiring to make every other moving part worse. It's like if you built a clock and every cog was the wrong side and they just immediately go into gridlock and the clock explodes. Um, If my brother who's a clockmaker is listening to this, please disregard what I just said because that doesn't make sense. (laughs) But um, yeah, so in terms of casting, Lily James and Army Hammer, you will definitely know Army Hammer. You will probably know Lily James. Lily James, I do not like as an actress. I find her extremely one note basically she just plays perky posh English girls Um, she has been I mean in Baby Driver she plays a perky American waitress but like her her big roles are uh, Mamma Mia Here We Go Again which is a good film because Mamma Mia is amazing but she is playing you know perky girl she's in a rom-com called Yesterday she's in Downton Abbey she was in Cinderella playing a perky girl and in this, she is absolutely playing to type. She's doing the one thing that she does, which I think is fair, right? Because like that's what you hire her to do. There are some actors where it's like they have their niche and it is the the filmmaker's fault for hiring her to be in this film and then telling her to do that because it is completely the wrong thing. They've rewritten the character to kind of make her more confident. So like obviously the film kind of starts out more or less, I mean, it follows the same plot but just from the get-go it feels like the writers of this film who are Jane Goldman, Joe Shrapnel and Anna Waterhouse, they're three English writers. Jane Goldman has written a lot of blockbusters like the Kingsman movies, uh, X-Men, Days of Future Past, that kind of films and um, they were like oh you know I just feel like it doesn't really make sense that he falls in love with this girl who has no personality and is so nervous. We need to make her kind of spunkier she needs to be fun and have more interest so they like give her more interest and they have like a sexier relationship so you see them actually more or less having sex like you see them kissing and stuff they have like an actual courtship and then once they get into kind of the actual moving into Manderley she kind of is far too confident like you still have the same general dynamics but, like, once you get to the end of the film, she's like freaking investigating the crime and stuff for her husband. So it's completely different. It removes all of the gothic tension and the kind of abusive power dynamics between her and her husband. And the performance itself is just extremely shallow because Lily James doesn't have the heft to, to be performing this in an interesting way. And the material makes no sense. As for Army Hammer, worse, I would say. Because Army Hammer is a better actor. I, I mean, obviously he chooses a lot of roles. There's also kind of a lot of discourse about his kind of place in Hollywood because he is this immensely privileged white man who for many years, various studios have been kind of attempting to make into a movie star. There was a rather cruel article written along these lines a few years ago, which I thought was a bit unfair. I do think he's talented. He is good in some things. He is obviously very entertaining in the social network in which he plays very much to type as a pair of douchebag rich twins (laughs) and then he's obviously great in call me by your name in which he is a sexy love interest also he's in sorry to bother you where he has a small role but is absolutely hilarious and is playing this like monstrously horrible rich guy and i think his like the two facets of his public persona are that he comes from a wealthy background and is quite charming and that he's horny like he's a horny guy not in like a bad way but he is he is a publicly (laughs) horny person And that kind of plays into his call me by your name role, which is quite a horny movie in a very good way. And in this film, neither of those work, right? Because he's like American rich, which is very different from British rich, old money. And it's also very different from repressed, creepy older husband, right? And he doesn't seem horny in this movie because this film is like very weird and sexless and bizarre, even though it has more sex in it than the original Rebecca. And the character he's been told to play bears no resemblance to the character in the book or the character in the 1940 movie in a way that just makes it seem like everyone involved in the film didn't understand what the story is meant to be about at all it's just deeply baffling like he looks constipated he is dressed badly he isn't scary and it's j- and they have this relationship where you're kind of meant to be like shipping them basically you're meant to be watching this movie and being like oh it's a you know it's a romantic period drama and like they have this this conflict in their marriage because he has this dark secret which is
1: (laughs) which is not the vibe you're looking for at all it is uh, shocking well i mean i am really rooting for Army hammer i'm quite fond of him he's sometimes very embarrassing but like i do like you know i'd like him to succeed He is awful in this. Like, I'm sorry. He is so bad. And I don't think he's like a genius actor, but I think when a director kind of gets him, he can be very good. I
0: mean, he can be very funny. And the thing is, he can also be scary. He can be scary. And he's like a big guy, right? Like, he has the physicality to intimidate people, right? And I think he is actually too American to play this role. Yes. But they don't utilize what he has at all, along with the fact that he is at base level very miscast.
1: I think the American thing is like a fundamental problem that was not ever going to be surmounted. Your brain can't process it. And And the accent is bad. They don't
0: don't build him like that here. They just don't. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) But I kept thinking like, so number one, it's very clearly coded in the novel, and slightly less obviously in the film, but like people at the time would have been able to pick up on this, that they don't have sex until after she finds out that he killed, or in the 1940 movie, they can't say that he killed her because of the Hayes Code. Um So he like, she, like pushed her and then she, she, she like, accidentally fell over.
0: <laughs> so they're covering up like a slip and fall, but it's like, we've yeah. all read the book.
1: <laughs> right. Well, this is the thing. I've seen a couple... You know, people recently been like, well, the movie changed that and that really changed the story, meaning the original film. And I was like, no, no, people at the time completely would have understood what was being said there. And and also they all read the book.
0: Everyone read the book, but also I feel like people do really underestimate the fact that people watching films at that time had brains, right? Because like, there's all these movies from the 1920s and 30s where it's like, deeply scandalous things happen, you know, and then in the final reel of the film, for censorship or just general moralizing purposes. The woman gets punished for having too much sex or something. And it's like, you do know that like the audience of this film were capable of ignoring the third reel. Like, that is historically what they were all doing because they knew what was up. They were watching a film to watch like someone behave badly and then you ignore the moral at the end because everyone knows how fake it is. <laughs> so- yes.
1: So I think that people watching that movie in 1940 would have completely understood the subtext of yeah. what was being said, even yeah. if they had not read the novel.
0: And also, like, all the way through the movie, like, they very clearly illustrate the fact that he has rage issues. You know, it's like he's a very scary, angry, like, forceful man. And I do actually think in the Hitchcock version, I think they should have kind of emphasized a bit more that Rebecca was truly a monster, which is kind of the impression you get from the book, because there is more kind of mentions of... The way she was behaving, like she, you know, she tortured a horse to death. She's kind of psychologically tormenting her servants and various people around her, along
1: with having affairs.
0: But like, I mean, it's fine. You know, it's fine.
1: I think that's probably also a Hays Code issue, Yeah, would be my guess. That makes sense. Because, you know, ladies can't do
0: yeah evil things. But like, basically, in the book, they make it very clear that she was like the worst kind of abusive spouse and the thing that trapped him is that he was too British and aristocratic to have a divorce so they kind of made an arrangement where she would be allowed to do whatever she liked in her private house in London and he would stay at home and they would just be married forever and be miserable (laughs) so
1: and I think one of the real strengths of that movie is that on the one hand the relationship between the second wife and Maxim is like obviously dysfunctional Number one, they're not having sex, which... And not because they don't feel like it. Like, there's clearly just, like, they're not talking about it, and she's like, why don't you like me? And he's just like, no, let's... whatever. Two, he's very condescending to her. He literally, like, calls her a child and an idiot, like, all of this stuff. I mean, it's, it's not good. But I think that, you know, the novel does this too, but particularly the film, and again, because of the Olivier factor. Like, I think you are supposed to understand that he isn't a sadist per se, right? Like, he's not, like, he didn't marry her to take her off somewhere to just be like, ha ha ha, now I have a little plaything to, like, toy with. Like, he yeah. genuinely is tormented and was tormented by this marriage and um, fell in love with this young woman and then like just does not know how to be a functional person and so then they got back and he was like I don't know that's what is really
0: just the genius of the book because basically what happened is like last year my friends and I had a little Rebecca book club where we were reading Rebecca out loud to each other (laughs) and then we didn't have time to finish it so I read kind of the second half of the book this week (laughs) and it was really interesting to just what to read the two halves separately because basically in the first half the way it is framed is. I would say extremely explicitly that you are reading it from the unreliable narrator perspective of if you are like a mature woman of the world, you'll be reading this being like, oh fuck, this like deeply controlling man has found a victim, i.e., the protagonist, and he is taking her off to a secluded location. He is very clearly kind of a controlling, abusive spouse. He is showing a million extremely recognisable warning signs. And then the twist in the book, it's a double twist because like obviously you find out the truth about Rebecca, but it immediately changes your perspective on his behavior earlier. So like obviously he has been behaving like badly towards his wife, but it actually hasn't been that badly because a lot of what's happening is kind of in the girl's head because she is taking all of these cues from the people around her because she is so alone and she is so vulnerable and she's so self-conscious that she is like interpreting stuff that is him being standoffish and unpleasant as being much worse than it is and it's having like a really difficult, it's having a much worse impact. And it's not to say like, oh, he's a great guy. Cause as you said, he's like massively fucked up, but it, it changes your perspective a lot. And you kind of see where it's coming from rather than him being this sort of Dracula figure. He is actually just like completely damaged and doesn't know how to interact with people.
1: And as I said, this is explicitly a rewriting of Jane Eyre. And I think that in the sort of modern day, the, Jane Eyre tends to get read as much less romantic than it was intended to be at the time Uh, my belief is that Charlotte Bronte completely intended that novel to be like profoundly and deeply romantic not that Rochester is like a flawless guy obviously but I think and like there are perfectly valid reasons why any individual in 2020 might read Jane Eyre and be like hmm this is weird there's obviously the post-colonial reading of that book now and also like he is very controlling and sort of like way more manipulative in fact than Maxim de Winter is in this because they don't actually get together until much later in the novel in Jane Eyre but um I think something that gets missing from like the way people think about Jane Eyre often now is that it is a profoundly profoundly Christian novel and like the whole point is that he's kind of like has to suffer and, like, be redeemed by the end of that book. So when they get together at the end of that novel, like, you're supposed to be rooting for them, right? And I think what Du Maurier is doing in this a little bit is thinking, like, okay, well, but this is actually a little bit dysfunctional, like, what I've just read in this other novel, so let me kind of play with that a little bit. But I don't think what she's trying to do is say, but it's just totally fucked up and horrible, and, like, there's nothing appealing about this. Like, she knows that there is something appealing about this kind of man like she totally gets that and the movie can like the original movie conveys that really well and it's obviously a combination of factors but I do think the primary thing is Olivier's performance which is incredible and the sort of peak of that movie to me is the scene where he tells the second wife no no you've got it all wrong and it's like 10 or 15 minutes and it's basically just you getting to watch Laurence Olivier act on stage like Hitchcock doesn't interfere very much. There are only a couple cuts and it's sort of medium to long shot of him in this like amazing sort of camel coat, just walking <laughs> around this little, little house on the beach and just like giving a soliloquy. Like it's so compelling and it's not like the film isn't doing very much. It's just the power of this actor. And you're like, wow, this does seem like it was really hard for you, even though this he has been acting like an asshole. <laughs> Fast forward to 2020, and like, they basically cut it. They like, don't have it in the movie. I just was so, like, you get to that scene and the whole lead up in the first of I mean, part there's that. no
0: twist because like the way, the way Army Hammer is behaving for the first half of the film isn't that bad. And it's also not like attractive. He's neither dangerous nor appealing, right?
1: He's barely even in it. Once they get to Mandalay, he basically does, he's like vanished. He kind of like shows up occasionally and like waves at her, but like they don't really talk. There are like no conversations. He's just not there. I was like, did you cut stuff? Was this just not in the screenplay? Like
0: what? <laughs> oh my God. The screenplay is so bad. There are so many scenes where characters just like explain what's happening to each other. They just like explain stuff. And I'm like, what happened? You have dialogue in the book to adapt from.
1: It is, it's genuinely shocking.
0: And And like even like the supporting characters, right? Because like they have, obviously Mrs. Danvers is like the primary supporting character. And I don't know how this is possible. Like I think in my review, I was like, is Ben Wheatley a bad performance whisperer? Because Kristen Scott Thomas is like incredible. She is a national treasure, an international treasure. And she is not good in this film. And she is perfectly cast as well. She is like, this is her comfort zone is playing Mrs. Danvers. And then you have Keely Hawes, who is a gorgeous, wonderful British TV actor who is also very much in her comfort zone as someone who acts in a lot of period dramas. She is playing Maxim's sister, who is in the book this wonderfully funny and well-observed kind of very upper-class sort of tweedy woman who's sort of, you know, airily taking charge of situations and being a bit, like, mean and bitchy, but, like, not in a kind of cruel way. She just doesn't give a shit because she's so rich. And... In the book, she's fantastic. She's slightly different in the Hitchcock movie, but also great. And in this film, she's just this sort of like nice supportive lady who shows up occasionally. And I was just like, what the fuck is happening right now? This film includes Anne Dowd, iconic character actress Anne Dowd, playing the horrible old lady that the second wife works for at the beginning. And she's shit in it. And I was like, I didn't know it was possible for Anne Dowd to give a bad performance.
1: What was happening? I know! What?! Like, she is actively bad, and I love that woman. And, like, what did he do?
0: How? And the thing is, right? The context here with Ben Wheatley is okay, I am not like a Ben Wheatley fan, but like, I respect what he does, right? He is, he's an English filmmaker and screenwriter he has made like a run of movies which are mostly kind of in the thriller horror zone. Like his big breakout film was called Kill List, which I've not seen, but it's kind of a a psychological horror film and it's, I think, quite violent. And that was in 2011 and then he did a few other movies and I saw two of his more recent movies. So like his last film was a country house drama, so it's more in the Rebecca zone. But before that he did... Free Fire, which is kind of, it's just like a full on bloodbath movie starring various actors, including Brie Larson and Army Hammer. I didn't like it very much, but like all of his films kind of have a cult following.
1: The reviews for that movie, I will say I didn't see it, but you were not alone. That got trashed.
0: Yeah, I mean, that film, it was a film that didn't get particularly good reviews, but did have fans. You know, he has fans. Yeah. Uh, none of his films at all, by the way, have turned a profit. I just like to add that. Like, he's a guy who he consistently makes movies and he has an audience, but his movies do not make money. And before that, he made High Rise, starring Tom Hiddleston, which is a kind of quasi kind of futuristic dystopian thriller set in a high-rise apartment block. It's a great vehicle for Tom Hiddleston. As a movie, it's stylish, but like it's got issues. But like, I have respect for it. Ben Wheatley does know how to make a film. He's not very good at female characters, but like He's not alone in that. But whatever the fuck happened with Rebecca, like, I don't know why he was hired for this in the first place, because he's a horrible choice. Like, this is not his comfort zone. He clearly doesn't understand the source material. And I think this is a situation where it's like, all of that just, it wasn't just that it was like, he's not good for this. The fact that he's not good for this meant that he just like, fucked absolutely everything up. Aesthetically, it also doesn't really resemble his other films very much, which is weird because like, it's the same cinematographer he always works with. So I don't know what's happening with Netflix. Like maybe this was Netflix interference. I don't want to blame it exclusively on them because clearly the directors and writers made a huge hash of it too. But like what?
1: <laughs> I so I've only seen High Rise of his previous movies. He did one called A Field in England, which I have the sense is the best regarded of his movies. I think it's set in the medieval period. I believe it's in black and white. I would like to see that at some point. I did not care for High Rise at all. I really like strongly disliked it. And I love Tom Hiddleston. And I was just like I thumbs down. Like I found it pretty intolerable. But even though I found that movie unpleasant and sort of boring, it definitely was like attempting to do something, right? I mean, he's a competent filmmaker. This is the thing, right? And also in
0: terms of acting, he knows how to tell an actor how to give a performance, right? Like,
1: <laughs> I just feel like I really am curious why this happened he feels totally uninterested in the material watching it like it feels like a movie or the director did not give a shit at all like I don't know if that's the case but that's the sense you get or I got anyway watching it and as you say it's just a mystifying choice I mean the, the aesthetic choices are like <laughs> I and mean, we're just like suits. staring at each other on this <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's like that silence. As I was just us looking at each other on, on on Skype, just being like, "What's happening?" I, I mean, definitely the the weirdest element of this movie is the suit, right? Yes, we
1: have to talk <laughs> about like, the costumes. The, the like,
0: caush- oh my God. So the costume design in this, it's not like it's not like horrible costume design, right? I've seen worse. It, it, the period isn't super clear at the beginning, but that's partly because it it just has like a modern feel. Even the trailer, like it looks like kind of Instagram filtery. It looks modern. The makeup is often quite modern on Lily James, especially. Yeah. She's got that kind of the glossy skin and stuff. It's very wrong. But like, they have Army Hammer in this mustard yellow suit for like the whole of the section at the beginning during their romance in Monte Carlo. And it's very puzzling, right? So I actually looked this up. I was curious. The costume designer is a guy named Julian Day, who... You know, he's not a particularly big costume designer. He's worked on Bohemian Rhapsody and (laughs) Rocketman. So, you know, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody was terrible from top to bottom. Rocketman looks great, but it's a very different type of film. And in this, their explanation was like they wanted kind of period accurate costume for him, which is like, sure, more people in 1935 would have been wearing a pale yellow suit and the costume designer in this interview kind of says that he was discussing this with ben wheatley and they were like oh yeah army looks like an oscar in this gold suit and they're kind of talking about how it's like a summery fabric and it's like he looks like shit in this he looks bloated and red-faced in this suit where either they've got a backdrop which is green screened or the whole thing has been color corrected up the wazoo because all of the colors in the lighting are so weird and artificial in that sequence but also Beyond the fact that he like physically doesn't look good and this isn't like the type of outfit you want for an ominously sexy male lead in his introductory romance, he's wearing it like I'm pretty sure in multiple scenes, which means that they have such so little understanding of like the sartorial rules for this situation, which if you even watch the original Rebecca, which was made in 1940, you can see those rules in play, which is that you cannot wear the same suit during the day and the evening, (laughs) like you change, you change for dinner. These are like very posh people they have servants with wardrobes they have like dressers you know so he is going to be wearing multiple outfits he as a person who is like only just out of morning if not still in morning is not going to be wearing like a fucking mustard yellow suit (laughs) with a red tie and it's like so it's not accurate it doesn't make sense he looks like shit and he's not sexy and it's very distracting because it's bright yellow (laughs) so like his costumes are bad and also her costumes are like not frumpy enough
1: she looks too good. Well, yes, they've made him look bad and her look good. And the reverse should be true, yes. right? And part of the casting problem is just that like, she is too beautiful. And we've already said, obviously, Joan Fontaine, of course, is a very beautiful woman. But like something about the way that she was beautiful and her acting ability meant... That, She's like, very
0: slim and they dress her in clothes that make her look even slimmer. So it's kind of they make her look vulnerable.
1: And... Yes. Very wayfish.
0: Yeah, wayfish. And it's like, she is gorgeous. But like Lily James also, like her performance, she is a very kind of ebullient presence. She The whole yes. thing is like she has a sprightly charm that a lot of people enjoy, which I don't agree with, but I fully understand. And that is what she's bringing to this role. And she's sort of glowing in summary. And that's all just wrong. That's wrong.
1: Yes. And I mean, not related to the like physical... Her physical appearance so much, but back sort of to what you were saying about the clothes, the understanding of class in this movie is so bad that it's kind of amazing. Particularly from a filmmaker, but it's like
0: he's English,
1: and he made High Rise are English. High Rise is an allegory about class in English.
0: (laughs) Because I I was literally like looking up all the screenwriters while I was writing my review, because I was like he made high rise sure, it just fe- it felt like when you watch an american movie and yeah. they don't and, and this is kind of the complaints that you had about the haunting of bly manor mhm and it's it, it was just very puzzling and it's like but you have source material to work from once again which articulates all of these conflicts very clearly and not only that but it's like an entire body of work within British cinema and television, it's like our main hobby is being neurotic about the class system and being nostalgic (laughs) about when we were more neurotic about the class system.
1: (laughs) But that first movie, to say nothing of the book, which is like the entire internal monologue of this woman who's like having a nervous breakdown as a result of this on top of all the, you know, gender stuff, of course. And it's just so much more subtle than what's going on in this movie. Like, for instance... Part of the sort of early scenes in Monte Carlo they run into each other at breakfast and he's like oh you should have breakfast with me and that's kind of like one of the ways in which they first meet. And in this movie she tries to go sit down for breakfast without Ann Dowd because she's you know taken ill. And the waiter working at the you know, cafe in the hotel or whatever, is like, this is only for guests, you can't sit here. And she's like, but I am a guest. He's like, no, you're not. You're the help. And I was like, that's not like this conversation (laughs) would never take place like that's What the fuck? (laughs) Like, Because the whole point of her job is that she's like the, you know, companion sort of like in this weird liminal space, right? Between being actually the help and then like... The whole point of her is that she is able to enter those spaces because... She
0: Correct. is someone who has come from like a, an upper class but has fallen on hard times.
1: Well, or it's kind middle of like class. Her father is upper middle her. class, I would say. I mean,
0: basically she's within a zone where she can be employed without everyone being embarrassed about the fact they've hired someone who's like the daughter of an earl, but she's posh enough that like she knows what's up.
1: Yes. And so the idea that they wouldn't let her in is totally absurd, but it's like they feel like they need to say it explicitly, so that like the idiots watching in twenty twenty, who of course don't understand any of these things, as because it's all so far in the past, ha ha ha, like can understand what's happening. Like,
0: what? which is why they're like explaining stuff. They're explaining the plot all the way through the film. You just have characters yeah. like telling you what should be subtext, and it it just feels it just felt to me like it's a film that's like Netflix branded rather than this being a Ben Wheatley movie that happens to be on Netflix. This is like a movie that Netflix's condescending executives think people want, which is a more upbeat, allegedly feminist remake of Rebecca. And by feminist, I mean, you know, the main character is more empowered. So like it makes more sense. And it's like, no, that's the opposite of the point of Rebecca. But like you have that like, as Morgan was saying about something else to me the other day, she was kind of pointing out that a lot of Netflix projects have uh, color choices and cinematography choices that make it easier to watch on your phone. And from my perspective as someone who like reviews a lot of Netflix or re- Netflix original content, a lot of it has this issue where they just explain stuff like fucking way too explicitly because they're like expecting you to only be paying like 30% of your attention to the movie. And it's like, this should be a compelling, intense thriller, right? This isn't like a romance that you put on in the background while like doing four other things at once. And it's depressing that they are making a film that is literally directed towards an audience that they don't have any respect for and or think are not paying attention.
1: Yes, I agree with that. (laughs) I concur. And in terms of the like class and gender stuff, It feels like there's this attitude of, like, well, in the past, you know, people were sexist and like women had to have these weird bad marriages and like, you know, there were these servants, but that was all so long ago. And like, you started that now. When
0: she started investigating stuff at the end, I was so fucking infuriated.
1: (laughs) I was like, oh my
0: God. There was a point at the end where after she knows what her husband did, and after the inquest has taken place, there's sort of a secondary blackmail subplot to, to, connected with Rebecca's cousin slash lover, who is like incredible in the 1940 film because he is, he's played by George Sanders, who is this like amazing posh British actor, like just absolutely hysterically funny in this film, playing a very plummy, obnoxious sort of like David Cameron. I don't know. He's incredible. <laughs> um, and in this film, he is played by Sam Riley, who is an actor I have you know, he's he's pretty good in other stuff. Like, I have respect for him, but obviously this is a nonsense film, so he's doing nonsense in it. But um, the kind of the, the key plot point here is that uh, he and Maxim are at odds over the facts of Rebecca's death. And in order to find out the real facts, they have to investigate this doctor that she visited on the day of her death. And the kind of result is that they thought that she was pregnant, but actually she had cancer. And the fact that she had cancer means that she has motive to kill herself and they can explain the murder as suicide. And in the book, this goes forward in the kind of stolid manner one expects from a kind of 1930s investigation. Like there's no running around. It's all sort of phone calls and discussions. And in the original movie, it's more or less the same. And in this, they have like... (laughs) They have Lily James like running off to, to London and like tricking her way into the doctor's office in the dead of night so she can like rifle through his files and find the right one and hide it while like the other investigators are hot in her heels. And I'm like, there's no reason for her to be doing this. And also it makes no sense. And why is she so confident? And why is she even able to do this when she's like useless and has no skills? So it's just ridiculous. And it's like, this doesn't and, make it a better story.
1: <laughs> and then when the doctor's like, no, no, like I'm not a, I mean- they all assume that he's like a women's doctor, and he's like, "No, no, I'm an oncologist." And then she's, he says that she had like cancer in some part of her reproductive system, and Lee James is like, "Oh yes, of course, because those symptoms that you're listing are symptoms of that cancer." And I'm like, "How the fuck would you know oh that?" Oh my like, god, I just remember what? that. Yeah, I
0: was like, I was just like, <laughs> by that point, I was just like in a fugue state. But yeah, it was so ridiculous.
1: So I was like, ah, she doesn't know anything. Like, did she go to med school? Like, why does she have powers? Like, just. I mean, people don't know about, like, women's health issues now, right? Like, that is a massively underspoken about topic. Like, people really are not educated about these things. The idea that in 1930-something, this woman is like, yes, I am familiar with the symptoms of ovarian cancer or whatever. It's yes, like, like, so fucking only medicine absurd. The exists like,
0: in this narrative is a glass of brandy or having a nap. Like,
1: <laughs> but they just feel it, it's like such a modern gloss on the past right like they either introduce things that are nonsense that would never happen like that or they're like explaining stuff to us because we're too stupid to understand what's going on which is also absurd like things have in some ways of course changed a lot since 1940 ish and, in other ways, have not changed that much right yeah. like and completely like failing
0: to accept the fact that people like in nineteen forty were also people with exactly the same emotions in like a slightly different system. And also, the reason why Rebecca remains such an incredibly popular book and film is because the central conceit is incredibly relatable and immediately recognisable, especially to women. (laughs) Like, it's like, oh, I just can't understand why this, like, powerful, fucked-up man would want to marry this naive woman who doesn't know how the world works. It's like, obviously, because, like, an experienced woman of his old age would run a hundred miles as soon as she met him. (laughs) Like,
1: (laughs) duh. (laughs) And, like... Teenage girls, I mean I I saw this movie for the first time a few years ago. I knew of it, but like I had not I was not a teenager when I first encountered this, but I read Jane Eyre when I was thirteen. Yeah, and teenage and girls are like, it, oh, right? he's like hot. Right. And I watched the movie and was like, oh my god, he's hot. Not that I didn't recognize that he was also a mess, yeah. but like I mean, this is the psychology that led me to
0: reread The Phantom of the Opera 85 times when I was 14 years old. <laughs> it's just how it goes. <laughs>
1: Like, we have not solved this problem. It's still happening. But no, no, they have to be equals now. Like, that's not how the world works. We don't need our art to be, like, boring in this way. It's so stupid. It's so oh, dumb. Oh, my God. We also should speak a bit more about Mrs. Danvers before we finish. Yes. I feel, because she yes. is an iconic part of this whole story. And as we we've said that Scott Thomas is not very good in this movie, which I agree with, which again, seems impossible, but is true. I thought at the very beginning, I was like, oh, no, she's like, she's doing pretty well. She's so great. And then it it just goes downhill. But there was a sort of concern when the movie was first being made from the Hays Code that it was, you know, too queer. Not that they were using those words at the time. But um they managed to get basically everything they wanted through, I believe. Certainly you watch the scene, the famous scene from the original film where um Joan Fontaine has gotten into Rebecca's rooms and Mrs. Danvers is like showing her all of her underwear and like talking about how amazing yeah, Rebecca was. And, like, and it's like Mrs. What? Danvers, yeah, she's like a famed queer-coded
0: villain in cinema. Like one of the most yes. iconic and is very plainly obsessed with Rebecca. And in the book, it's like more of a dual thing in the book, right? Because it's like in the book, you know, yes, she's a lesbian and she's in love with Rebecca. And also she's kind of, she's older. She's like a mother figure. And basically they make it plain that she kind of raised Rebecca. It's a very kind of twisted relationship obviously does not state outright that she was gay. And then in the 1940 film, they kind of remove all of the backstory. They don't bother to mention it because it's not really relevant, but they do make it clear that she was like obsessed with Rebecca. And then in the new film, they add back in all the backstory. Like, oh, you know, I raised her and what have you. But they remove the gay stuff
1: and it it then is just like, what? I feel like there's still... intending there to be some kind of subtext like she's clearly still obsessed with her yeah but they've deleted like the scene in rebecca's rooms they delete most of that and certainly i mean she holds up like one lace 90 or something that was rebecca's but like the full breadth of that scene is cut
0: I mean I did not get I did not get gay villain vibes, which is wild as well, because like Kristen Scott Thomas could do this in her sleep.
1: <laughs> I didn't think it was effective. I just felt like watching it and like in my head I was like, I feel like they still think that there's something happening here that they're like trying to convey on some level, but it was so anemic compared to Judith Anderson in the original, who again is this like unbelievably charismatic figure and the performance in that movie is so amazing because she has this very her face is like an oval. It's very smooth and like she's middle aged but it's like this sort of white oval that like doesn't move and yet there's like so much feeling in her that is conveyed regardless. In the lighting of the
0: original because it's a black and white movie, it is stunning cinematography stunning lighting just the lighting in that film is gorgeous and because it's black and white you essentially have her as this like monochrome figure with completely pale oval face as Morgan said black eyes so she's got these glittering black eyes that are just like staring and her styling is extremely distinctive because you have kind of You have the second Mrs. De Winter in these sort of virginal, slightly frumpy, sort of pale outfits. Like she only wears a dark colour after she's found out the secret about Rebecca and implicitly had sex. So it's like she's simultaneously become like a sexy adult and also she's in mourning, which is very fun and gothic. But um, you have Mrs. Danvers in this like bizarre outfit, which is riffing off the idea of kind of the uniform that a housekeeper would be wearing in one of these old houses so like a black outfit with a white apron but she's not wearing that she's wearing this sort of floor-length tight-fitting puritan dress it's very puritanical pure black with like a little white bow at her neck and then millions of little buttons (laughs) and then her hair is in this sort of braid around the top of her head so it's, it's got this kind of like european vibe like black braid over her head and the whole thing is like very witchy with like definite like dominatrix overtones and kind of nun-like and at one point when she goes out like outdoors and has to wear hacks it's 1940 she wears what looks like a sort of a nun or a nurse's like wimple which is just like unbelievably good styling and then in this she's just wearing like a suit and also i would say that that suit would be too fashion forward for like A conservative middle aged woman in 1940 who's working in service. Like a suit would be like a quite adventurous, more like gender bending type outfit at that point. So,
1: (laughs) no. Again, it's just like, why make this movie? What's the point? Right? Because I don't think there's any reason. I don't think it needs to happen. I think. There are certain sort of classic texts, like Jane Eyre, where... But, like, I love that 2011 movie that I feel no particular desire for another version. But, like, that's been adapted many times. It will be adapted again. That's fine. And, like, Rebecca is a novel that people will be reading forever because people like it so much. And in theory, you could be like, well... And it has been made into a TV show before. Like, it's been adapted multiple times. It's not the same thing as adapting... I don't know, like, all about Eve, right? Like, remaking all about Eve is, like, more blasphemous in a certain sense than redoing Rebecca, because it does have that kind of, like, classic text status. But the fact that the movie is still so beloved means that you have to cross such a threshold of, like, why do this to make it relevant? And they haven't done anything with race or sexuality I mean, obviously, there's nothing to do with race in either of the movies, but, like, the sexuality stuff is more interesting in the 1940 version. Like, that film is queerer than the one made in 2020, and it was made under the Hayes Code, which is, like,
0: how would this happen? Like, I don't understand. I was, but like, and also, like, in terms of the sexual content which obviously in the original is non-existent this is something else that angelica bastian brought up in her review which is something i think about a lot just kind of in general while watching contemporary mainstream american films which i believe we've discussed before as well which basically is that like hollywood films have not been sexy since about 1990 you know it's this like weird situation where the new version is clearly like oh well, we can include some smooching now we can show some sex so like they have scenes where they're in bed together you know that they've had sex which is different from the original where it's ambiguous but as Morgan said we can we can infer that they probably haven't (laughs) and they're kind of meant to have a more obvious kind of sexual component to their relationship but the film is completely incompetent at illustrating that there's no chemistry between these two actors and there's because like the vibes are so utterly like deadened there's no tension in general. And the thing is that I can see a version of Rebecca where if it's like a more daring filmmaker, you make a much more sexual version of Rebecca, which is a way to kind of stay within the bounds of the original narrative, but explore things that couldn't have been explored on screen in 1940, right? And we have recent films which literally do that. So we have uh, Phantom Thread, one of my favourite movies ever made, which is literally Rebecca like Phantom Thread very brilliant film if you've not seen it already there's Crimson Peak amazing gothic more horror based movie by uh, Guillermo del Toro and you have The Handmaiden which we did a few episodes ago which is like obviously a different kind of story but it's in the same general wheelhouse and those are doing kind of more extreme things that you couldn't be showing in 1940 and you could make a version of Rebecca that is that but this isn't and it actually has like Less sex Although appeal. Although which stuff obviously could
1: not have been made for a variety of reasons in nineteen forty has no sex in it. Yes. Like, there's the scene where he—you ad- know—they're having sex. They're clearly very active, but you do not see anything. Right. <laughs> and I think part of the reason why that film feels so sexual is that he gets what made those old movies compelling, yeah. which is that like you don't show any of it. It's just kind of in the air. And the most sort of physical contact you really see between them is the scene where he's um, taking her measurements for the dress right at the beginning, I think. I don't think there's really much beyond that. Not that they like, never touch or anything, but like there's not yeah. a lot of... like There's n- no explicit sex in that movie whatsoever. And so, not that you can't have a sex scene in a movie that is very erotic, obviously, but part of the reason why those old romances work so well in the Hays Code period is that like the fact they couldn't actually show anything, the tension was really yeah. intense. And kind of a philosophy I have with a lot of
0: movies, while conversely, I'm also arguing that like American films just aren't sexy and haven't like have forgotten how to be sexy. But also a philosophy I have a lot of the time is it's none of my business. Right. There are some like romantic pairings and some narratives where whatever's happening behind closed doors is none of my business. And that is, this is the archetypal example of none of my business. (laughs) Whereas in some movies, it's like completely 100% relevant to have, if not full on sex scenes, then make it really clear what's happening, right? (laughs) A lot of contemporary rom-coms, totally appropriate. But like, this is a story about a bunch of repressed people who are living in like an English country house and nobody's having like a sexy Gosford Park style affair. They are like having weird power games so
1: (laughs) yeah it's just they don't get it I mean we keep saying this and we'll end on that note too they fundamentally do not understand the material they were adapting at all I don't know why anyone decided to do this except that they were like people seem to like that so I guess we'll do another one and people will watch it. Oh, they're going to tell us that like 80 bajillion people have watched this movie. It's the most watched movie of all time, and they will be lying. Like That's fake. So when you see that statistic, again, it's not true. So I would love to know how many people actually watch this movie, but we will never have that information.
0: Some people have replied to my review on Twitter saying the film's good and my opinion's wrong, which is like, okay, thanks for reading my review. And I know that some people think Army Hammer is hot in this movie, which is insulting to the films in which Army Hammer is arguably hot. Like he is a conventionally handsome man. He has looked good in some films. He does not look good in this film. (laughs) I mean that as you
1: say is just fully, that's an insult to him. Like really I just think that that's insulting to him as a person and to Call Me By Your Name specifically. He can be very sexy. I mean he's not my particular thing really but like he can be and in Call Me By Your Name he's playing the kind of like older guy right? Like there's an element of like a little bit of threat there and in this he literally is just like the most boring person. <laughs> the amount of erotic
0: labor you are having to do as a participant in this right. to find the mustard yellow suit attractive is quite frankly, you should be getting residuals.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we should end on that note. I can't top that. That's just <laughs> drop the mic, go home. Um So
0: join us next week for Lord of the Rings again. Lord yeah. of the Rings 2. <laughs> Swing it up. <laughs> And the quality, quality (laughs) quality-wise? Yes. If you've not listened to our first Lord of the Rings episode, it's brilliant if I do say so myself. We are both, like, got into a lot of expertise on the Fellowship of the Ring, both the film and Tolkien's historical background, his literary influences, the way the film was adapted, and so forth. We are, we've also done a commentary track for the first Lord of the Rings film, and we will be recording a commentary track for Lord of the Rings 2 uh, for next week, along with a podcast episode about it, which is going to be
1: awesome. Yes, so if you want those commentary tracks, you can find those at our Patreon at patreon.com slash Uh Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully this was entertaining to you. Uh, please watch the original Rebecca. It is available on YouTube if you want a higher quality version. Um, I don't believe it's streaming anywhere else, but there's a Great Criterion disc, which I own. So, you know, ask for that for Christmas or something. Um, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find my work on The Daily Dot. And you can find me at Twitter and letterboxed at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.